All right, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter uh, chapter seven, or uh, chapter starting in chapter six and going through chapter seven. We introduced this section two weeks ago, and I was going through my notes and uh, you know mentioned the fact that we we would cover part of the list of things that are better uh, the first week, and then next week, Lord willing, and as I was coming the. Uh, I couldn't even see the stripes of the road, and it was not safe, so I turned around and went back home. So uh, <laughs> we didn't meet because the creek rose. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so uh, so here we are tonight, and uh, uh, actually going to look at another. Remember this section? Well, I'll read the section, and then we'll we'll discuss the themes and kind of re- refresh our memory where we were two weeks ago, and then look at one of the things that's better than another in, uh, in our text tonight. So beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he, since there are many things that increase vanity. How is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your sight your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Today we'll focus on verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And when we began looking at this two weeks ago, uh, you know, we, we saw how this passage begins describing the weakness of man and it ends describing the sovereignty of God. The preacher said we cannot know what is good, we don't know what's coming, uh, but we do know that God has appointed both prosperity and adversity for his purpose. We know that God works all things together for good, for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. And we also know that no amount of adversity, uh, nothing that happens to us is able to separate God's children from uh, the love that he has for them in Christ Jesus. And so... Uh, so we're reminded of our weakness, 
but of God's sovereignty and God working all things according to his purpose and his plan. And so the, the text begins reminding of, of us, us of our weakness. We are taken from the dust. We will return to the dust. We don't know what's good. Our hearts are deceitful. We don't know what's best for us. Sometimes we make plans and we long for things that if, uh, if, if our plan worked out the way we planned it, it would be destructive and would not be good for us. We long for things that uh, would not be helpful for us. Our life is like a shadow. It comes, it's there for a minute, it's gone the next, and the earth uh, has no, uh, no mark that the shadow was ever upon it. There's no impact uh, left after we go. He tells us we cannot know the future. Uh, we don't know what will happen after us under the sun. Will tomorrow be a day of prosperity or will it be a day of adversity? Will, be, will we be happy tomorrow or will we be mourning? Will we be snowed in or will we be able to go to work? We don't, we don't know. Uh, uh, we won't know what will happen tomorrow. The future is hidden from us. It is a mystery. We are weak. We are temporary. Life is confusing. Life is short. Man cannot see beyond the bend in the road. He cannot predict results. His days are like a shadow, and he passes away, and he leaves nothing behind. Weak, temporary, mysterious, dependent, we, uh, we see. But, uh, uh, and so the preacher says, you know, if we, if we were going through this by ourselves, we would uh, be in despair. We, we would have to give up, believe there's no hope. But we're not alone. Our Creator is with us, and we consider, can consider the work of God uh, and know that He has ordained uh, prosperity and He has ordained adversity. And He knows the future because He's ordained it, and He's ordained it to accomplish His purpose, and He's ordained it for the good of His people. And so we can't know what's good, but the preacher says we can know that some things are better than another. That's a key phrase, a key word in this particular passage is some things are better than others. And he gives us a list. We looked at four of them two weeks ago. A good name is better than precious ointment. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow can be a powerful teacher. We learn more about ourselves. Uh, on sorrowful days than we do on happy days. We learn about our weakness, our dependence, our need for God. Uh, we learn those things in days of, of adversity. And we learn about God. We learn about His loving kindness, His faithfulness, and His enduring presence and His gracious providence. And so that's what we covered last time. And so today we get to the fifth thing that the preacher says is better than something else. It's in chapter 7, verse 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. I read a quote as I was uh, studying this passage uh, today, and the quote is, one of the most loving things that anyone can do for you is to tell you when you are wrong. <laughs> one of the most loving things that anybody can do for you is to tell you when you are wrong. The rebuke of the wise is constructive criticism. A rebuke from a wise person can be can, can be a call to correct behavior that's questionable, harmful, or sinful. Proverbs 12.1 tells us that whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but those who hate to be rebuked are stupid. <laughs> so, Proverbs, that's in the Bible. <laughs> those who hate to be rebuked are stupid. 
Um, so what does it mean to be, what, what is a rebuke? Okay, a correction. Yeah, bringing uh, uh, something in the light. So expose something that is not right, something that is wrong, something that is harmful, something that is, uh, that is so, so to bring, bring it into the light, to, to speak to someone. And, and so a rebuke is to speak specifically to a person about something that they are doing that is wrong, that is harmful, that is sinful. That is destructive, uh, and there and there's, you know, I, I, there's a sense in which we don't like to be rebuked. You know, if I were to call you up and say, you know, tomorrow I'm going to come over to your house and rebuke you, uh, you might uh, make another appointment. <laughs> I'm busy tomorrow. You can't come by. You certainly wouldn't pick up the phone and call a church member and say, you know, brother Mark came called me and said he's going to come over and rebuke me tomorrow. I just can't wait. It's been so long since I've had a good rebuke. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I need it. Uh, we, we don't want to, uh, you know, we, we don't want rebuke, even though we might need it. Uh, and the preacher tells us it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. And so a wise person coming to rebuke you, that's better than having fools singing your praises. Um, the sin is, this, you know, the truth is we are all sinners. And sin is deceptive. And usually the, one of the first persons that sin deceives is the sinner. And we're able to rationalize. We're able to look around at other people and figure out that our sin's not so bad. Or we look at our motive, the end. And so we, we've got a good goal in mind. And so if I have to sin a little bit to get this good outcome, this good goal, we can rationalize our sin and we can approve it and uh, and, and think that it's really not that bad at all, or even not, we can convince ourselves it's not sinful. And so sin can deceive us. We can be blind to our sin. And sometimes my sin is more visible to you than it is to me. Uh, a sinner's sin is more apparent to those that are observing sin sometimes than the one who is committing the sin. And that's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need the church. Uh, we need Christian brothers and sisters to come alongside of us and lovingly rebuke us. The author said, one of the most loving things that anyone can do for you is to tell you when you are wrong. And rebuke is a great act of love. And, uh, and maybe the reason we don't like the thought of being rebuked is because it's so rare that we have ever seen it done well. A lot of times when we see rebuke, rebuke is more uh, uh, condemning or more uh, 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 bringing shame and, and the goal maybe just being to expose and not to restore. And so, uh, so it, is, uh, it is easy for the rebuker to approach the rebuke in the wrong way, with the wrong tone, even with the wrong motive and maybe even before examining his own heart, before bringing the rebuke. And so it's rare to see a rebuke done well, done in love. And so maybe that's why we don't like the idea of being rebuked. But the author tells us it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Better for someone to tell you when you're doing something wrong than for someone to sing your praises.
And so where do, we, where do we find the basis for loving rebukes? What's the standard? The, the, the commandments? Yeah, the word of God. Uh, you know, the, 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 Paul tells us in, in 2 Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so it's not about opinion. It's not about preferences. It's not about um, um, anything other than God's standard in the word of God. And uh, interesting, Paul uses rebuke, reproof, correction, like uh, in just a couple of verses. So he tells us, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that God's word is profitable for rebuke. And just a few verses later, Paul tells Timothy to convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And so, uh, so Paul uh, echoes the sentiment of the preacher in Ecclesiastes that it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. And so the preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that it's better for a wise person armed with the word of God to lovingly rebuke me than to have a choir of fools singing about me. And to care for each other well in the body of Christ, you know, we need to ask God for the courage and the faith to tell the truth about sin, to expose it, even if it might cause offense. It's good to hear rebuke. It's also good to speak one. If you would, turn over in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Um, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, we have what Jesus will tell us as the second greatest commandment. On the last uh, Tuesday of Jesus' life, someone comes to him in the temple as he is teaching on Teaching Tuesday and asks him what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus says the greatest, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Jesus then says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in Leviticus, and there he's quoting Leviticus chapter 19 verse, verse uh, 16. Or, I'm sorry, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18. Uh, we see the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when we go to Leviticus chapter 19, we can see the whole context of that command. It begins in, in 1917. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so that's the context of that command. And so he sets up the, uh, the contrast between hate and love. If you do not rebuke your neighbor, you are hating your neighbor. Uh, love is to rebuke and and so that's the the context and also notice that the second commandment you shall love your neighbor as yourself is uh a a response to the first 
The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And uh, the motivation for loving your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor yourself, verse 18. Then what does he say? I am the Lord. <laughs> and so loving our neighbor is loving God. And when we love God, we will love our neighbor who's been created in his own image. We're to love God. We're to love his word. We're to love his holy standard. And we're to love our neighbor who was created in the image of God. And we are to seek the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And we're to love our neighbor and seek God's glory and seek the good of our neighbor enough to expose wrongdoing, to rebuke our neighbor when he is not living up to God's holy standard. The text says we hate our neighbor when we fail to rebuke him. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of us. And so to not rebuke your neighbor is to hate your neighbor. And to not rebuke your neighbor is also to run the risk of bearing sin because of your neighbor. And so failing to rebuke can itself be sinful. And when we rebuke, we are not to take vengeance. And if there is repentance, we are to grant forgiveness. Uh, you are not to take vengeance. You are not to bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so uh, a failure to rebuke is a failure to love God. Failure to rebuke is a violation of the first and greatest commandment. Failure to rebuke is a violation of the second and greatest commandment. If we fail to rebuke, it means that we love something more than we love God. Maybe we love acceptance. Uh, we don't want to risk a relationship we don't want the complications that might come with a rebuke we don't want the awkwardness of a difficult conversation we don't want the discomfort of having to say something that is hard to hear and so failure to rebuke is loving ourselves more than we love our neighbor or more than we love god and, you know, it's almost always easier not to say anything. But when we don't say anything, we're letting our neighbor go merrily down the path of folly that leads to destruction and death. But a loving rebuke is an act of love and self-sacrifice, willing to risk that awkward moment, perhaps having the counsel thrown back into your face, uh, uh, the, the person accusing you of hypocrisy, saying, hey, who, you know, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Or the Bible says not to judge. Uh, who are you to judge me? And so a rebuke is a risky thing, a self-sacrificing thing. But it is an act of love. Sometimes the most loving thing a person can do for you is to tell you when you're wrong. And when someone loves us enough to give a loving rebuke, instead of throwing it back into their face, who are you to judge me? Uh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Instead of throwing it back, we should be profoundly grateful. And we should thank God for his grace in raising up someone that loves us enough to bring our sin into light so that we can own it, so that we can confess it, 
so that we can forsake it and so that we can receive the cleansing that Jesus provided for us on the cross and, and work with the Holy Spirit to put that sin to death in our life. And so when someone loves us enough to give a loving rebuke, we should be grateful. And you know, in our culture, we have confused love with being nice, being tolerant, being polite, letting you be you. So we don't speak. And we think sometimes that failing to speak about the sin of our neighbor is the loving thing to do. But God tells us the rebuke is the loving thing to do. If you fail to rebuke your brother, your neighbor, then you actually hate your brother and are at risk of bearing sin because of him. There can be no clear statement of moral responsibility uh, for issuing loving rebukes. Now, this passage, you know, doesn't give us the right to be someone else's conscience. It's not a call to a judgmental and self-righteous spirit. The passage doesn't set up two classes of people, rebukers and neighbors. Uh, but in this text, neighbors are rebukers and rebukers are neighbors. It goes, it goes both ways. Not only should I speak truth into someone's life, but I should be willing to have someone speak truth into my life. And so sometimes I might be the rebuker, sometimes I might be the neighbor that's in need of rebuke. And, uh, and that is, uh, uh, you know, as long as we have indwelling sin, as long as we're in these bodies, we all need help and we all need to uh, be helpers as we work together as the body of Christ to put sin to death in our lives. And our rebuke should be in light of the gospel. You know, the first John tells us if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so a rebuke brings our sin to the light. We take responsibility and accountability for our sin. We confess it and we receive the cleansing that Jesus provided for us on the cross and we believe that he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse we have the promise of forgiveness we also have the indwelling holy spirit and we have the gospel to encourage us to examine our hearts confess our sin turn from our sin and turn to jesus jesus provided for the forgiveness of our sins through his death on the cross and his resurrection and the truth is we we see we are we are helpless sinners and the death of Jesus proves that we're sinners and exposes our sin and exposes the fact that we are helpless. And the only way for us to be saved is for God to give his son to turn away and, 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 and experience the wrath that we deserve. If there was any good in us, you know, Jesus would not have had to die for us. And so the rebuke, uh, the rebuke doesn't inform us that we're sinners. It tells us what we already know. And that we have indwelling sin. Uh, and so when someone rebukes, they're not attacking our self-worth or our self-esteem. Uh, they're just affirming the fact that we are sinners and we still have indwelling sin. And it's not an attack, but it's an opportunity for growth and for greater joy. As our sin is brought into light, so we can, in the power of the Holy Spirit, put it to death, confess it, forsake it be cleansed and forgiven and uh, 
and grow more like the Lord Jesus. And so uh, uh, to rebuke your neighbor is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it is to love the Lord and to love his word and to love his standard and to love his glory and to love those who are created in his image and want them to grow. And so back to the preacher in Ecclesiastes. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of, of, uh, of fools. You know, he's told us in chapter 6, we can't know everything, but we can sure know that it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. We do not learn very much when a choir of fools is singing our praises. <laughs> Uh, you know, some people find, a, find escape from guilt and shame and, and popular music. And popular songs are, uh, are written to help us escape reality instead of face it head on. Or popular songs can uh, glorify and justify our sin. Popular songs are hollow, empty, and can provide momentary entertainment or escape. But uh, the rebuke of the wise is better than the song of fools. And then he goes on to say, the laughter of fools uh, is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. For, the la for like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. And so what's the image of the crackling thorns under a pot? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, are thorns good fuel when you when you're gonna when you're going to have a fire in your fireplace to warm your house? Would you use thorns? Why not? Because they burn really quick, you know. So they're crackling noise, and so so crackling thorns under a pot, you know, uh, is not going to heat the water because the fire. Burns for a second and immediately goes out. Uh, thorns burn easily but quickly, and they burn quickly and quickly are extinguished. And, and so the laughter of fools can be like a sudden flame. Uh, it displays sparks accompanied by plenty of noise, but soon spent and easily put out. When kids were over, uh, we, we had sparklers for uh, uh New Year's Eve, you know, and you light those things and they sparkle, sparkle, sparkle and crackle. It's kind of this image and then pretty soon it's gone and you got a, got a, just an empty stick <laughs> that goes in a box and goes in the trash <laughs> and nothing was accomplished. The kids enjoyed it. They laughed. It was there for a second, but then it was gone. And so is the laughter of fools. Sudden flame, display of sparks, plenty of noise but soon spent and easily put out. The song and laughter of fools can provide momentary comfort, but it will not last. It's short-lived like the flame of thorns. Therefore, it is vanity, useless, meaningless. The song of fools singing your praises and the laughter of fools might bring temporary comfort, but it does not last. But the rebuke of the wise... The rebuke of a wise person armed with the word of God 
can provide lasting and eternal results. And so that is much better. Because even our new hearts in Christ are susceptible to sin. We still have, even though we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are this new man living, we still have indwelling sin. And hard conversations, somebody loving us enough to rebuke and keep us from making the same mistake twice, from making more mistakes, or from slowly wandering away from Jesus, slowly getting off course, um, keep us from backsliding. James chapter 5, verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so when one wanders away, lovingly seek them out, lovingly bring their sin to the light, lovingly restore them. It's a ministry of love carried out in the spirit of Galatians 6, 1. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in a, in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Go after the wandering one and bring him back to the way of truth. And so uh, the work of, you know, the, the loving rebuke can turn one back, wandering away, turning back to the truth. Now, we know the work of saving a soul from death and covering a multitude of sins is God's work, but we are privileged to be tools that he uses, instruments in his hands, as he delivers those who are very near destruction and as he seeks and saves the lost and as he runs after the wandering ones, sometimes he chooses to use us as instruments of his grace, uh, issuing a loving rebuke. And so the preacher tells us, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under pots, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. And so the truth is we need each other. We need the body of Christ. We need folks who love us enough to uh, speak truth into our lives. If we've been deceived by sin uh, or are blind to our sin, someone around us or near us, loves us enough to come and, and uh, bring it into the light so that we can own it, we can forsake it, we can confess it, we can be cleansed, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can work to do better. And so we should receive rebukes as an act of love and be grateful when someone loves us enough to bring our sin into the light. And then we also should be lovers of our neighbor Sacrifice himself to do what might not be comfortable, what might be awkward, but to love enough to lovingly rebuke our neighbors so that uh, their sin can be brought into light. They can own it, confess it, receive the cleansing, and then the power of the Holy Spirit work to mortify it, work to put it to death. Questions about the loving rebuke. Hard to do, probably harder to receive, or hard, hard to do in the right heart, you know, and that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where the, the passage 
where it does say, judge not, lest you also be judged, does talk about our self-examination and can't take the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a two-by-four hanging out of yours. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, self-examination, the right motive, the right heart. But even if the, the tone is not right as a receiver of the rebuke, um, you know, be grateful that God is gracious and, and has, uh, has uh, used a Christian brother or sister to help you grow and experience greater joy in the long run. All right, any other thoughts about that? All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we're, we're thankful for your grace and your love for us in Christ Jesus. And, and Lord, sending Jesus in the world because we are helpless and hopeless sinners, unable to do anything to save ourselves. And, and Lord, you sent Jesus to take the penalty that we deserve to die in our place and you raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted and your wrath has been turned away from all who believe. Lord, we thank you for the call to repent and trust in Jesus in the new birth that is ours through the Holy Spirit. But we also recognize that uh, we still struggle with indwelling sin. We still struggle with deceitful hearts. And Lord, we thank you for your grace to use so many different means to, to expose that sin so that we can put it off, put it away. And Lord, we thank you for your word, your Holy Spirit, and for Christian brothers and sisters who love us enough to lovingly call out when we are doing it wrong doing something harmful, doing something destructive, doing something sinful. And Lord, we pray that you would help us all to, uh, to, to see that it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And Lord, help us to be grateful for your grace. Thank you for the body of Christ, for the church, where we can watch out for each other and turn each other back and pick each other up when we fall. And so, Lord, we thank you for loving Christian brothers and sisters who were willing to, are willing to speak truth. And, and, Lord, make us willing to sacrifice ourselves, our pride, to love our neighbor enough to speak truth and love to them so that we all might grow closer to you, more like Jesus, and in our joy and our effectiveness for your kingdom. Lord, help us to uh, live that standard in our, in our church, to, uh, to love each other, to pick each other up, to turn each other around, and to speak truth in love. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.